0: Hello and welcome to the Leadership Institute's Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast, recorded live every first Wednesday of the month here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. February 2020's breakfast speaker was John Miller, host of the White House Brief on Blaze TV. Speaking the day after the State of the Union, John spoke about the accomplishments of our president and some of the issues facing our nation. So get some jelly on your bagel and take a sip of your milk because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast.
1: Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studios intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studios intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind the scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the career tab to learn more. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Thank you to the Leadership Institute for having me. Thank you, Mr. Blackwell, for having me. Uh, that list, I sat down next to Mr. Blackwell and the list of authors that introduced me to conservatism. He asked me, okay, I know this is the, uh, this is the list that we said you read in college, but uh, <laughs> who did you actually read? And it turns out that was actually the list of people who I read because they all are on your read to lead uh, guide. And, the, and it turns out that just everyone who introduced me to conservatism ended up being on that list. But uh, I went to Columbia University uh, extremely liberal. I don't even know if "liberal" is the right term for the university, <laughs> because it's it's essentially a Marxist campus. And uh, I graduated 2011, so about seven, seven eight years ago. I'm I'm a uh, you know I'm in politics, not math. So uh, seven or eight years ago, I graduated. It's not nearly as bad. It was not nearly as bad back then as it is now. And it was bad back then. And so I was trying to find myself. And I grew up in a completely non-political household. My dad was a jazz musician. Um, my mother was in, was in horseback riding, so I had no idea what I wanted to do, and uh, you know, I didn't want to go to law school, <laughs> I didn't want to be a doctor, and so I was like, well, what do I do? And they said, well, you go into media. That's what you do <laughs> when, when you don't know what else to do. So, uh, so I was like, well, okay, I'm going to do politics. Uh, we didn't have a political household, so I didn't know what, where I felt politically. And because my parents weren't political, they didn't say, well, you know, you have to be a Democrat. Because when you're in a black family, lots of times people say you have to vote Democrat. That's just what we do. I was fortunate enough so that my parents did not have to say that to me. And so I said, well, what do I believe in? How was I raised? Well, I was raised in a faith-based household. I was raised to believe in individual liberty. I was raised to believe in working for yourself and working hard to earn what you get. And so that kind of just led me to conservatism naturally. And then I got to college, and my dad said right before I got to college, he said, okay, son, you have to understand about these universities. Either you're going to get there, and you're going to become a far leftist, because that's what they all are, or you're going to go completely in the other direction and become an extreme right-wing crazy person. And I said, oh, I don't know what that means, dad. And he said, you'll see. And so I I got to Columbia University, and I said, okay, well, I kind of aligned more with Republicans. So I joined the college Republicans when I got to Columbia. And the first meeting that we went to, they said, oh, well, we need to, you know, we need to compromise because our party has become too radical. Our party has become too extreme. You know, this stuff about not compromising with the Democrats, really, you know, growing government, that's what we all have to do at this point. We just need to get together with the Democrats and do that. And I sat there and I said, I'm not really sure this is the right club for me. I'm not really sure I fit in here. If you're talking about working with the Democrats and compromising your beliefs on individual liberty, compromising your, uh, your beliefs on economic responsibility, if you're talking about your beliefs on completely growing government, because we were in the era of McCain, which is grow government and abandon the free market to save the free market, we were in that era, 2008 about, I was thinking, I'm not sure I want to be a part of the College Republicans. So I went and I, jo- and I applied for an internship with this guy named Glenn Beck. And I had never heard of him, and I said, oh, he's a, I guess he's a conservative radio guy. Um, I kind of want to see what this is about. I kind of want to get involved. And because I was lucky to be in, in New York City, I said, okay, well, I'm going to take this internship. I walked into the, at the time it was Mercury Radio Arts was the name of his, uh, his, uh, his outlet. And it was a radio studio, and I interviewed there, and he hired me on the spot. And he said, we need more people like you in the movement who are going to actually speak out and who are actually going to buck the trend in college. And again, we have the craziness now that that Cabot's showing, which is that you go to places like Georgetown University and they're not even teaching American exceptionalism. They're not even teaching the things that, uh, that used to just be considered American ideas, that used to just be considered historical concepts. They're not teaching that stuff. And so he said, we need more people who are actually going to actively fight. And so I said, well, how do I actively fight? And he said, uh, you'll figure it out. just go to your classes and actually speak and write about what you believe. And so I did that. I went to my classes. I, I, I wrote from a conservative perspective. And I found myself getting C's on papers. And I went to my professors and I said, uh, "You know, can you explain to me what exactly was wrong with this paper? What, 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 was, what was your contention with the paper? And they said, well, it was well-researched. It was well-written. It was well thought out, but you arrived at the wrong conclusion. And I actually had a professor who said that to me. And I said, this is incredible. So at that point, I just said, you know what? Screw it. I had a a, uh, professor. His name was Rashid Khalidi. And Rashid Khalidi is a good friend of Obama. He's a Hamas supporter. And so I just started going into his classes with a little recorder and recording his lectures. And then I would go (laughs) to, to, to Glenn Beck's show on Fox News, and we would play his lectures, and that's, (laughs) and I'm not sure what the, you know, I was very early on in the journalistic uh, world, and so I think now there's, I, I don't know how we got away with that, but we did, and I'm glad we did because it exposed a lot of what was being taught on college campuses, and it exposed that it was not just a little bit biased, but that it was extremely radical, and that the Democrat Party and the people on the left These are not the leftists that you grew up with. These are not the people who, you know, you can get together with at the dinner table. These are not the people who believe in anything that you believe. And at this point, I believe that compromise with them is completely futile. It's completely futile. Where do we stand? Where do we compromise with what the Democrats of today believe? Where do we compromise with the things that the modern left believes when they believe that uh, not not, not just in the first trimester, but literally after birth, you can actually take the life of a child. Where do you compromise with that? Where do you compromise with when the president in a speech says, we will not become a socialist country and the Democrats sit because they have a number of people in their caucus who believe we do need to be a socialist country. We do not have just, uh, you know, it's not even democratic socialism anymore. Bernie Sanders, when he first ran for his congressional seat, he said, I am a socialist and everybody knows it. And everybody does know it. And now we're looking at Iowa. We're looking at the Iowa caucus. And he is somebody who I think they bungled it. And that's a whole other story. They completely bungled that and how embarrassing for them. But it looks like he's gonna win that thing. And it looks like he has a good shot of maybe even winning the Democratic nomination. In fact, back in 2016, he probably would have won the Democratic nomination if he didn't have Crooked Hill come in and screw the whole thing up and rig the system. And Donna Brazil admitted that happened. But I think, you know, when you have Democrats like this, where exactly do you compromise with them? Where is the point of compromise? And I think last night was such a perfect example of that, when you had the president give an excellent speech. I mean, was that speech fantastic or what? I thought that was a fantastic speech. And then Nancy Pelosi, obviously, uh, she didn't agree. She didn't think it was such. And just to see her take a speech, which I thought was unifying, you had a a, a unifying speech, and just to see her take it, and I'm surprised, to be honest, that she could even muster up the strength at this point to (laughs) to rip it up into pieces. But she ripped up the speech, and it's so representative of the country. You have the president who's delivering a unifying speech. You have the president talking about, because of the uh, governor of Pennsylvania, because he vetoed school choice, You have this little girl, this little African-American girl, who was denied, or at least was put on a wait list, couldn't get tax credits for the school she wanted to go to. And the president is offering her a scholarship to to go to her school of choice. And the Democrats are angry about it. The Democrats look at this girl. They look at this mom hugging this little girl because she finally gets to get an education she wants that she wasn't able to get due to liberal policies. And they sit for that. You have Trump lauding a 100-year-old Tuskegee airman, an African-American airman, a war hero, and his great-grandson who wants to also go to space, Donald Trump talking about him with such pride, and the Democrats are furious about that? Where do you compromise with that where you have a soldier who is reunited with his family at the State of the Union and they're angry about it? What world are we living in? Where do we say, okay, well, we want to work together with you? You don't? and you have to defeat them. That's our only option. That's our only option. I mean, you've got the female unemployment numbers at record lows, and they all sat. They all sat there. They all had their white on because of, uh, because of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the 19th Amendment. And they sat because women are finally working. And you have to wonder, okay, well then, are you rabid traditionalist? Are you saying that, uh, okay, well then, maybe women don't want to work, maybe women want to start families? What exactly is your message when you sit for that message? And so while you have the president trying to bring us together, and I truly think he could have gotten up there, he could have said the Democrats are trying to impeach me, he could have said the Democrats are working against me, this is a witch hunt, he could have gone full Trump beast mode and done that thing, (laughs) and instead, he didn't. He stayed away, and he talked about things that bring us together, and meanwhile, the Democrats are fiercely trying to divide us. And I understand why they're mad. I mean, wouldn't you be, wouldn't you be mad if you were in their position? Wouldn't you be mad if, if the results app broke, the results app? They have the results. I did mean, the same guy who designed the results app designed the website for the Affordable Care Act. Remember, remember that website? It was the first ever website that could put you on hold. They, I mean, I don't know how they design these things, but the website, you go to the website and it puts you on hold like a rotary phone. <laughs> so I just, I, you know, and it turns out the person who actually worked on that app was a guy named Robbie Mook. You guys all know Robbie Mook. He worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign. So the first thing that's obviously popping into people's minds is—is is this somebody who intentionally bungled this? And they said, "Oh no, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't a glitch. It was just a miscount." We still don't have the results. Yesterday, they said, well, at 4 p.m., we're going to announce half the results. <laughs> half the results for the Iowa caucus? And that completely deprives any momentum, so they completely, they've screwed themselves for this entire primary now, because they got off on the wrong foot, and now Iowa is completely irrelevant, and they have a guy named Pete Buttigieg, who is in the lead, and we're told that Joe Biden is the presumptive frontrunner. I said from the beginning, I said, there's no way this guy is actually the, the frontrunner. I don't care what the polls say. You know, These are the same pollsters who brought you the amazing um, fantasy that was the 2016 election that Trump was never going to win. They're saying that Joe Biden is the frontrunner. And I'm saying, you look at the party, you look at what's happening in our country, you look at the schools, you look at what, it's, what the schools are teaching, you look at the fact that such a large number of young people believe socialism is the way of the future, there's no way that Joe Biden, who is uh, more or less one of the more moderate candidates, is in the lead. And it's true, he's not in the lead. In Iowa, he's, he's, he's head in head with Amy Klobuchar. He's barely in fourth place because moderacy has no place in the Democrat party. And Joe Biden, as, as much as he tries to, through his stumbled sentences and forgetting where he is and forgetting what he's doing, as, aside from all of that, he still has represented a more moderate wing of the party. That's not where the party is. And I think Nancy Pelosi was infuriated by that last night. And the question was, when she ripped that speech, was she doing that to show a sign of solidarity with her party to show, look, I hate Trump as much as you do, or was it simply her own rage and that she couldn't contain herself? I think it was the latter. I think she's lost so control of her party, she also represented a more moderate wing of that party, and instead, which is crazy, because you know the fact that she's the moderate, the fact that Nancy Pelosi is the moderate is insane, but it's true, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, they are the new leaders of the Democrat party. That's where the party isn't. So again, I have to ask, where do you compromise with them? And you don't.
0: Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, writing workshops if you want to make a difference in public policy visit leadershipinstitute.org that's leadershipinstitute.org
1: and so i'm so impressed with the president with his tenacity with his tireless with his indefatigability it's really otherworldly when you think about it because he literally has people who are stepping on his throat He has people who are trying to thwart him every step of the way, and he is still getting things done. He has the Democrats who are trying to stop him. Every time he tries to get a piece of legislation passed, the Democrats get in his way. You have the courts who are a huge issue because the courts think they are just power, they are are omnipotent. The courts think they can do whatever they want. Every time the president tries to get something done, the courts get in the way, they try to stop it. They don't actually have that power, They shouldn't actually be doing that. It's judicial supremacy and yet they think they can because they are ideologues, they are rogue judges who are stepping out of place. You have them, believe it or not, you've got people within Trump's administration who are thwarting him, who are trying to get in the way and who are trying to actually stop him from doing the things that he promised. If you didn't have all of those forces, we wouldn't even need to have Trump for a second term because he would have been able to get everything done. Great example of that is the border. A great example of that is immigration. You have everyone trying to, including the courts, including Congress, and again, there are certain people within Trump's administration whom I believe do not actually uh, agree with him on actually securing the border. And if he didn't have those people, we'd have a border wall. We would actually have a secure border because the president has the power to shut down, and, and I think in many ways it, it probably goes too far, but he does have the power vested in him to actually shut down the border if he wants. The President of the United States has the ability to choose who comes in and out of the country. And the Congress can come in and they can say, well, you know, we're not going to let you do that. But at the end of the day, that is, if you believe in limited government, one of the few things that the executive branch, that the government is responsible for, is actually securing the country, is actually securing the border, because that's how you defend our freedom. If you can't defend our borders and if you can't actually decide the kinds of people who come in and what those people believe, you can't actually defend the freedoms that we believe in this country because the people who come in are coming from places who don't believe in those freedoms. And you have people who are coming in who don't actually hold our values, who who don't actually understand what makes our country great, who don't actually love our constitution. You get people like Ilhan Omar, you get people like her, who it's, she's not an illegal immigrant, but I don't believe she's been properly assimilated. the The kind of hatred that she that she outwardly displays to the country is astonishing. And so the kind of uh, and, and so I think it, it is so important to actually have um, assimilation. And so you can't just let anyone willy nilly into the country, because you have to have people who believe in America, who believe in our creed, who believe in what we believe in, and who who revere our Constitution and who revere our Bill of Rights, who understand our Bill of Rights, who are not trying to take away our First Amendment, who are not trying to take away our Second Amendment, and who are not trying to sit there and say that Americans are not great. And that's essentially what they did when they didn't show up to the speech. That's ex- exactly what AOC did when she didn't show up to the speech last night. You have, uh, you have uh, people who are satisfied with what the president is doing, and that's another thing that's driving the, the, the Democrats crazy is that the the president's approval rating is the highest it's ever been. It's higher than Obama's was at this point. And so you have, and I think that that's what drove Nancy Pelosi to rip up that speech, is that she's trying to do all of this. She had this impeachment. Today, the president is gonna be acquitted, right? The president's gonna be acquitted today. And Nancy Pelosi has been trying to impeach him. She listened to the far left wing of her party that originally Nancy Pelosi didn't want to impeach the president. And then she said, okay, well, she caved. Didn't work for her. President's getting acquitted today. He gave a great speech last night. His approval rating is higher than it's ever been. So I think that was just a a shred of rage that she went into because she has failed as a speaker. And you look at the satisfaction with the issues, the economy, 68% of people say they are pleased with the economy. Since Trump's election, the economy has created 7 million new jobs. I mean, that's a huge number. 7 million and a lot of things that people aren't talking about is the USMCA. You can have your thoughts on that But the fact of the matter is, uh, almost 200,000 jobs have been created, workers, farmers, manufacturers. Jobs have been created because of that. The unemployment rate recently hit its lowest mark in 50 years. Stock market keeps breaking records. The president is rolling back regulations. Remember, we said, well, you know, if we can get one or if if we can get two regulations uh, rolled back for every one regulation added, that will be good. Instead, the president has rolled back eight regulations for every new one. Eight regulations for every new regulation. I mean, that's shrinking government. That is the process of shrinking government. I don't care what you say about some of his other policies. Uh, Rolling back regulations has been huge, and it works, because he has saved Americans 50 – I I, I don't remember the exact figure, and I have 50 bucks in my notes, which I know is not actually correct. (laughs) But but it it has saved the Americans – a ton of money in the process. And then there's, uh, you're told the farmers, farmers hate Trump. It turns out 83% of farmers and ranchers are approving of the president's job performance. It's the highest level of support that he's received among farmers since he's taken office. His support is huge. And he's defeating ISIS in the Middle East. His foreign policy is, you know, we're we're trying to determine what exactly is the Trump doctrine. You know, and Iran is probably gonna be his biggest struggle and whether he, he, he's more isolationist or whether he's more interventionalist. And I think he's trying to, I think, you know, we all know he wants to withdraw from the Middle East. It's just a matter of how to do that. And so he, at, at least he, he has defeated ISIS. And so it come, when it comes to military, the vast majority of the American people are satisfied with the strength, with the preparedness of our military, uh, despite everyone telling you that he's trying to, he's trying to start World War III. We have the most powerful military in the world, And we don't use it unless we have to. And I think that that is also the limited government perspective. You have a strong military, but you use it only when you need to. We have 2.1 million in military personnel. We're ranked number one in total aircraft, 13.4 thousand of them. Ranked number one in fighter aircraft with 2.4 thousand of them. We're ranked uh, third in combat tanks with 6.4 thousand. Twenty-four aircraft carriers. Our defense budget is 16 times that of the next highest defense budget, which is Russia, we have this, who is the second most powerful military, and yet Trump's ideology says we don't use it unless we have to. We've got Bolton, who's sitting there saying we've got to use it everywhere, and then we've got Trump, who's saying, okay, well, we don't want to use it as much. And, and so I think the Trump administration is in the process of trying to figure out exactly uh, how their foreign policy is going to unfold, and I think we're going to start to see what exactly the Trump doctrine is. But the fact of the matter is that voters voted— to get out of the Middle East. Voters voted to stop these endless wars, and that was a big campaign promise that Trump made. And so I think that's a big campaign promise that he's going to need to keep. And I think that that's something that a lot of people within his administration maybe don't agree with him on, but it doesn't really matter because that's what the American people voted on. That was a huge campaign promise along with the border. Now, when it comes to race relationships, it's very interesting because that's somewhere where Trump is not exactly, um, the majority of people are not satisfied with Trump. When it comes to race relations, and uh, and a lot of people will say, "Oh, it's Trump's rhetoric." Oh, it's Trump. You know, Trump is a racist. Trump is a Nazi. Trump is a white supremacist. You know, anytime you're left of Ruth Bader, Ginsburg, anytime you're right of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they call you a white supremacist. You know, I literally, and I go to my email, and people are calling me a white supremacist, and it's just, <laughs> and so at a certain point, you just have to ignore the racist title. You have to ignore the white supremacist title, uh, but interestingly the satisfaction numbers with race relations in this country are slightly below half the country. And I think that is because, not because Trump is a racist, but we have, as I had mentioned earlier, the issues with illegal immigration, and you have people who are not assimilated. I mean, when you have sanctuary cities, last night we had Jody Jones, um, whose brother Rocket was killed by an illegal immigrant who was imprisoned six times. Deported, imprisoned six times, he was let out because uh, he was intoxicated. And under California's sanctuary city laws, you can get intoxicated, it's a misdemeanor. They let you out, ICE faxes in a detainer, and then basically they ignore it. They let him out. Jody Jones' brother, Rocket, was killed in a, in a shooting spree at a gas station because of these insane sanctuary city laws. I mean, you don't think that that kind of policy, when you have this influx of people from Central, South America, fuels race, race, at least, animosity. When you have people who are literally beating kids up on a bus, you, have, uh, you had a, a, a white kid, uh, and they said he was wearing a MAGA hat. Um, and then a group of black kids came up, and they just started beating him, or be, uh, beating the kid. And it turns out he wasn't even wearing a MAGA hat. When you have a group of Covington Catholic boys who are literally vilified by the Washington Post, by CNN, by these major institutions. Literally, they make enemies of them simply because they're white and Trump supporters. You don't think that fuels racial animosity? You think it's Trump's rhetoric? I mean, they smeared those boys to the point now where they, they, the, the, the Nick Sandman has won a lawsuit. But they smeared those boys, and it was simply because of the color of their skin. They dropped the, uh, oh, you can't touch children. You know, you have little Greta Thunberg, who you're not allowed to say anything about. You know, you're not allowed to criticize her. You know, you have all of these children. You, you have a, uh, what's that little guy? What, what's the little, with the skinny arms? What's his name? The gun guy, the gun control guy. David Hogg. You've got David Hogg. You're not allowed to say anything about David Hogg. Guy can't spell. Right. He's at Harvard University, which comes to show you, you know, who these kind of people, these universities are letting in, but you're not allowed to criticize him. But when it comes to someone like Nick Sandman and the Covington Catholic Boys, you're allowed to make up lies about them. You're allowed to say that they are that they're harassing this Native American man who was literally in his face beating the drum. All of that stuff and the media is complicit in it is fueling racial animosity. And these are really big problems within the country. Because uh, I don't think that Obama did us any favors when it came to race relations. I think Obama was one of the most divisive presidents we have ever had. And I think that when it comes down to what we need to, how we need to go forward in this country, uh, race relations is going to be a huge thing because they are getting worse. They're not getting better. We're going in the wrong direction. I think Obama kind of sparked that because I honestly think if we had a, a, a president who was not as radical as Obama, Uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we are because every criticism you made of Obama, oh, I don't want the government taking over one-sixth of the United States economy with health care. I don't want that. I don't believe uh, in massive spending. I I don't believe in complete redistribution. I don't don't believe in a complete transformation of America as we know it. I don't believe in the pen and the phone uh, approach to government. If he hadn't done all of that, I think we would be in a place where people wouldn't have, uh, where uh, people start to get more extreme because they're called racist, because you criticize Obama's policies, you were called a racist, you were called a Nazi, and now anytime you espouse a, a certain conservative point of view, you're called a Nazi for it. And I think, you know, I, I think we're in a place where it's going to get worse, and that's where we need to start focusing on. Are the issues that matter to the American people. And so that's kind of what I do, and I have a program, it's called the White House Brief. And uh, I came to DC, and I was originally a producer, and they said, uh, uh, we want you to be a White House correspondent. And I said, what? I've never done on-camera work, I've never, <laughs> I've never been in front of a camera, um, so what do I do? And they said, well, you just go to the White House, and you know, you'll report on the stories, and you know, you'll do some reporting, and I said, okay, fine, um, seems easy enough. And all of the stories there that people were talking about were things that did not matter to the American people whatsoever. Oh, who is, uh, who, who's eating lunch today? What's on the menu? Uh, who, 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 who's being fired today? All these names I didn't hear about. I said, well, what if I just reported on the things that actually mattered to the American people? which are the things that I've just talked about. What if I actually talked about things that Americans care about, that actually affect Americans' lives, their daily lives and what they do? What if we actually talked about uh, the things that the president is doing to improve the country? Because the American people, they voted for a president who was going to revive the American economy. The American people voted for a president who was gonna stand up for the American worker. The American people voted for a president who was gonna get tough on immigration, who was going to be strong on crime, and who was going to end foreign wars and stop selling out to foreign interests. And that's what they got. And those are the issues that the American people care about. And those are the issues that I think that the American journalists have a duty to report on. They're not doing that. And so that's what I attempt to do with my program. You can catch it on Blaze TV. You can catch it. I have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash miller. Catch my videos, go there. But we talk about all of the things that are actually affecting the American people, not the palace intrigue and not all the nonsense that occupies the White House Correspondents Association. So with that, I'll open it up to questions. Thank you guys, and I appreciate you guys listening to me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more Breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.